Well, that was a pretty moving podcast. We've just literally finished uh, the podcast with Richard McCann. Richard is the son of the first ever victim of the Yorkshire Ripper, uh, Peter Sutcliffe. And we've just sat down, spoke about Richard's life being defined by that and, and, and sort of getting on in the world after being defined by that, but also the situations that have arose in his life and how he's redefined himself and how he's managed to get through that, but also go on now to inspire thousands of people. He speaks all around the world and he does motivational seminars all around the world also. Uh, Richard has popped by to, to share his story, but also share some advice with us from his life story and, and the stuff he's done. Uh, what an amazing pod, Chris. Really, really good pod. Again, we've, we've had a few guests who are brutally honest um, but yeah it's Sean in Richard's story a lot he was very honest about the ups and downs in his life um, from the tragic events and when he was a five year old um, through to the present day really he's had a lot of setbacks uh, yeah just it was really moving some some really deep insights he shares some real honest honest and I mean like really honest uh, insights from him some thoughts and experiences that he's had in his life and we travel through the podcast and into what he does now uh, at the age of 50 it does not look like 50 but you know we'll get into it in the podcast before we start do want to mention uh we would haul for hosting us thank you very very much for having us here we are eternally grateful for being able to come in set up the equipment and sit in a beautiful hotel and, and be able to invite guests here vegan breakfast this morning as well so vegan thanks for breakfast that. chris o'connor ordered a vegan breakfast that we would all uh we've got an amazing convive restaurant to pop by it's just before after we set up to have that breakfast so thank you to steve kershaw and the gang for having us here and we also have a patron website uh, that people can support us with and through that patron website we have had matt morris of Morris Infrastructure, who's come through as a legend supporter. You can have a look at the details for that on, online and what that entails. But I want to give a shout out for this, uh, for sponsoring the pod. Uh, what a legend you are, Matt. We're trying to move away from having full-on sponsors, but Matt's you know, really, really supporting us and, and making it possible. So thank you, Matt, for that. And thank you for your business, mate, your, your business input. His brother's got a Morris Infrastructure, so anything that you need building-wise, uh, site management you can give them a shout it's based in Leeds Matt's actually from Leeds and is in, over in Perth too so thank you guys for the support and for being a club member as well Mentality Club member and there's an apparel coming out soon want to give a shout because as this podcast is released it will be coming very soon have a look on my Instagram have a look on the Mentality Instagram and keep your eyes peeled for the collections coming out ready for autumn going into winter and with that done, with all that said, let's jump into the pod. Today, we're at Weirwood Hall, and it's awesome to have on the podcast today. We've obviously got Chris O'Connor, the co-host, and Richard McCann sat down with us today. Um, so, quite a big podcast, this. Thanks for coming in, Rich. Pleasure, mate. Uh, brilliant to have you here, mate. I'm just give a bit of context to the listeners. And... I actually went along to Thrive, Thriving Minds Conference, Mental Health Conference, and um, Jodie Hill put it on. She's been on the on the podcast before, actually. Um, I went along, and, and there was a, like a bit of a morning of speakers up till about 11, 8 till 11 a.m. 
and Rich was the the headline speaker, I think. Um, and he come on and he, he sort of stole the show and, and really added some real depth to to what was going on. Added some depth into to the conference. Uh, and he set the tone for the day uh, for the rest of the day. So I'd gone on to Rich after and said, "Mate, love the love the the way that you've responded to to everything that's happened into your life. Um, let's let's get you on, Rich, and, and speak about what's happened, what you do now, and we'll enjoy the chat." Um, so awesome to have you on. How are you, mate? And I am um, fine. It's, it's a great, I'm having a quiet, a quieter week than normal. Normally, I'm running around yeah. everywhere, so I'm enjoying that. Um, yeah, thank B- you. Bit of a laid back, chilled out uh, podcast that we would all just around the corner from where from where you are, isn't it? In this gorgeous room with the <laughs> yeah. beautiful temperature. Bit yeah. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit chilly. We're getting heaters on. There's, there's some people rushing for heaters, but um, brilliant, mate. I, I think I think to to add some some background, um, just explain who you are and, and, and what you've been through and what you've done and, and we can jump in, mate, and, and go well, from there. Absolutely. And and by the way, the comment you made there about being the headline speaker, I, I wasn't the headline speaker. <laughs> Maybe it's because I was a local lad because I think there was a lady on before me that she'd had her turbulent journey mm. as well. And, and before we came on air just now, I was talking to you, we all have journeys, don't we? We do, yeah. And what I used to think as a young person and as a young adult was... The stuff, and we'll go into the stuff shortly, but the stuff that I was going through and the thought processes that I had and the depression, I thought it was just me. I was like the minority. Mm. But actually, when you start speaking to people, there's a hell of a lot of people that go through stuff, um, mm. which is why it's great. I know this is what we're going out today, but today, as we're recording, this is World Mental Health Day. So I think for those that don't know my story, and the thing that I'm known for, or one of the things I'm known for is that 44 years ago, and we're coming up for the 44th anniversary, in fact, I lost my mum, or we lost our mum at the hands of Peter Sutcliffe, who, I don't know how far this show goes, but for everybody outside the UK, was a serial killer that became known as the Yorkshire Ripper. And my mum apparently was the first person to die. I will never forget that day, that morning, because it's just, well, well, we we woke up early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, walking the streets, wandering down the field at the back of the house looking for her and little did we know she was actually laid on the field Peter Suckler had killed her on the field in the middle of the night and I am so grateful that it was dark on October because had it been June or July it would have been light we would have seen my mum on that field and you know that that gratitude there for that not being as bad as it could have been is one of the things that's helped me not just then all those 44 years ago, but in the things that's happened since, because it isn't the only challenge that I've been through. Yeah. You know, we, we all go through stuff. And, and as you can imagine, that's, that's had a massive impact on me and my siblings and all those other families that have, you know, lost their mums, their sisters, whoever, to Peter Sutcliffe. So, so, so I guess that's the start. And, and, and I suppose, you know, some might say, and some do say, you know, Oh, I've been through some stuff, but not as bad as yours. And yeah, I get that. And to some, you know, it was a big, high-profile case. But actually, when you sit down and talk to somebody about the thing that they went through, and it might just be, you know, the the dog being killed in a road accident, the pain that is caused, it's the same level of pain, just caused by something different. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's healthy for us to compare our tragedy, our setback, our you know, situation to somebody else and think ours is worse than them because your pain, your turmoil, your whatever is yours and don't, let's not minimise the impact that it might be having on you. Even still today, as 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 I said before we came on here, 
it still affects me in some ways. And yeah, okay, life's completely different now. And I sometimes can't believe that I am where I am and I am married and I've got three children and I'm no longer ashamed. I can't, you know, sometimes think, gosh, but, um, but I'm still affected by it. We still have little triggers and, uh, you know, it's, it's never out of the news, to be fair. Mm. Not that that's as big a trigger as it used to be because, you know, my thoughts about him have changed over the years and we might get into that as well. But I guess what I'm saying is that's what I went through and that, to some degree, shaped who I was for many, many years. And and did you say you were, was it five years old that you, that you were when yeah, you were? Yeah, it was a week before my sixth birthday. So it was the yeah. 30th of October. And my sister who, who, who went with me to look for mum, she'd just turned seven. And you know what? Even when I think about that scene and we sat at the bus stop, waiting for her to come home on each bus. Even when I describe that scene, there is still part of me, and it might be a coping mechanism, that doesn't really appreciate how young I was and that, and that, and that it was actually me. You know, I say the words and I've written the words, and but actually, no, it was, I was a little boy. I, well, I went, I was, funnily enough, I went back to my old school, Holy Rosary Catholic Primary School. It, it, it's Holy Rosary in Trinity now, but anyway... And it's moved aside. But I went back for my, it, it, I wanted my 2,500 pres- presentation to be a one that I was going to remember. So I called my school, my old school, and explained who I was. They'd never heard of me. Sorry, they didn't know I'd been to that school. Sorry. That. So they, they let me go in and give a presentation. And, and I spoke to year five and six, which I think is like, t- is, it, is it nine, 10, and 11? Yeah. yeah. Because it's a bit hard hitting, of course. And, and actually, I didn't tell them mum was killed by Sutcliffe. We watered down the presentation. Yeah, yeah. But what, what was in, interesting for me is at the, the, I hung around because they had an end of the week, get the school together, do some celebrations. And I saw the size of the kids that were in year one, which is what I was in when mum died. And I went, oh my God, that's, that's how small I was. And it, yeah. it was really, because in my, in my mind, it's almost like it's like I was a teenager. No, I wasn't. Mm. Or I was a little five-year-old kid, which is bloody young. Yeah, and can you can you remember can you remember how you sort of managed the whole process? I mean, I know you spoke about uh, in the talk what I'd seen that it was it was a tough upbringing anyway. You know, with your family and well, it was tough even before mum died. Yeah, you know, we we were on the at risk register. We had I mean, my dad left when I was four. I've got memories of I mean, dad, dad's replacement was just as violent. This is mum's boyfriend. He um, he gave a substance to me and Sonia, which made us hallucinate. It must have been one of his kicks, I don't know. Mm. So and I remember my dad coming back once to snatch us away from mum and her boyfriend and there was a fight going on and he was hit with a hammer. It was, so it and was that was all, when you were living with your mum. With my mum before yeah. she died. Yeah. But it's because of that situation that when she did die, one of my coping mechanisms, and this has been with me ever since, is I told myself, what's happened is, <laughs> it's crazy when you think about it, God has intervened because mum was getting beaten. She was on psychiatric wards. God's intervened, taking me mum away from all that. And also we're going to have a fresh start with my dad and he's got a new girlfriend because we set up, we had three months in the children's home. Whilst we were in the children's home, it was decided that we we're going to be with him. So I just thought, yeah, that's why it's happened. It's to give us a better life. It's a crazy thought process, but it, you know, it was a dark situation. And what can make it less dark is me thinking like that. Do you think that almost, and I mean, I know there's not much, any positive really, but you, you sort of put a positive slant on that to, to get through it. No, it is not a positive. consciously, but you sort It is of, a positive. Yeah. I know it's, it's a really weak positive, but I've lost my mum. Mm. We didn't know she'd been murdered. 
I can't remember who told us that, but we knew that she something had happened on the field at the back of the house and some man had been involved, but they didn't, we didn't get the detail of the stabbings and all that. But anyway, so yeah, that's happened and I can't reverse that. So what can I do? It's like, I'm looking around, what, what can I do to make it? Well, do you know what? She's not being beaten anymore. And it's, that is true, isn't it? Yeah. So I know that it's really difficult to... If I met somebody now who had a family member murdered, I wouldn't say to them, come on, find, focus on the yeah. positive. Yeah. But it but it is what I did. But you consciously did think that at like yeah. five, six. No, but, but you, I, you were like trying to find the positive slant on... on yeah, absolutely. The, wow, Be, yeah. Which is mind-blowing, isn't it, for yeah, little five-year-old yeah. kids? Or but six. I guess maybe there's like an inbuilt defense mechanism within us that that sometimes looks for that to keep keep you going mm. but yeah because it'd be fair to say my siblings have not fared as well as i have through this situation and they've not fought in the way that i did mm. so it's not like it, we're all we're all born with it true yeah yeah and, and i've been asked well why, why was it okay for you to think and why, why i can't answer that mm. all i know is it helped me and it is there for my siblings. It is there for us all. That ability to look at that situation and think, well, well, how could it be worse? I'm grateful for having nearly six years with my mum. What's the positive here? And and there is. But that's for the individual to go on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I won't say to you, if, if you're, if you're, I don't know, your, your wife or your missus or died yesterday or tonight, this morning. Oh, come on. Yeah. You won't say that. Yeah, it's for the yeah. individual. It's a process as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, I won't force it on, on anybody. And all I know yeah. is it helped me deal with that tragedy at the time. Mm. After that, because, you know, it's, most people think about being a kid as being completely carefree and innocent. And it's, it's unimaginable for me to kind of even comprehend how I would have dealt with that as a kid. But what, what were your childhood years like after that? C could you... Did you yeah. struggle to ever be a, a kind of a kid again or did you still manage to? I didn't struggle. Well, actually, what, what I did was to, to deal with it, I, I, I almost wore two hats. There was the hat that everybody saw. So I tried to be this carefree kid and, you know, I started hanging around with the guys on the estate, on, on the, the, the new estate. And, you know, we'd do, we'd do the things and we got into drinking and you know, as I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but we used to go on the canal. And so I have got some nice memories of that period, but, did but, but internally that? I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, process yeah. that I, I, that this happened to mum and, and I pretended it never happened. S some of the kids actually next door neighbors and such like they did know, but at school I, I tried to pretend it didn't happen. So it's like living a lie. I wasn't being real. It was certainly wasn't being dealt with. Mm. So we didn't get any counseling back then. Big mistake, but we all know now, you know, you got to reach out. You got to get support through this stuff. Um, but also we had my dad to deal with. My dad, we already knew my dad was a bit violent, but when he, it was now being, you know, tasked with bringing up four, he just had a child of his own actually. So they had five kids, four of which have just lost their mum to a serial killer, which is in the news all the time because it became this massive media Story, it still is today. So we had all that going on. So he was still out there at this time as well. He was still out there yeah. carrying out the attacks. And not only that, I was also living in fear because the fifth person to die was Jay MacDonald. What not many people know is Jay MacDonald, who apparently was the first innocent. They were all innocent, but mm. she wasn't a sex worker. She lived on the same street that we, that we live with my mum. She lived seven houses away, Jay MacDonald. And she used to babysit for us. 
So in my mind, I thought, oh my gosh, this killer, he must have been watching the house for months. He must have decided when he was going to kill him. And he also knows the babysitters and he's come back and killed one two years later. I was in a mess and I was living in fear. I can remember being left in Bramley Fallwoods by my dad. They were climbing down a quarry to get some wood. They were building a pigeon shed, pigeon loft. And because I'd been left alone, because it was too dangerous for me, I thought this killer's going to jump out now. So I, I, I couldn't bear it. I started screaming as if he was there. And my dad came running. He said, what, what's up? What's up? I said, oh, the, the, this man, this man tried to attack me. I can't remember how I said it, but I said this man, I said, what did it look like? I, I made up this person's description and my dad went looking for this person. I'd lied, actually. What I couldn't deal with was the fear of him attacking me. So, so those are just some examples of how mm -hmm. it affected me. But one of the big things that it did for me, I felt because of the way that this man was portrayed in the media, I'm not stupid. The women, not Jane, but most of the women that were looked down upon, in some cases, deserving of what they got. And there's just been a new documentary, which is still available on iPlayer, three-part documentary about the way that the... I've seen it, actually. Did you yeah, see that? Yeah, it's uh, really good. I don't like using the name, but it's called the Yorkshire Ripper Files. Shocking. I didn't know... I mean, I knew it was bad, the way that they were treat and... Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know it was I that bad. I couldn't believe it when I was I watching was it. I was shocked to the core. And in fact, I tell you what, I, 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 I'm going to do it. I started doing it yesterday, funnily enough. I'm going to write a, a letter to West Yorkshire Police and say, you, we as the families deserve an apology for what you said, or how you portrayed the victims. I'm going to do that. They come off really badly. Oh. Um, you're so, in the documentary, right? I am in the documentary. Yeah. So, so, so I didn't know it was that bad, but I knew it was bad. Yeah. So because I knew that people were looking down at these women, I felt that. That stayed with me. So I went through my schooling years not feeling as good as, you know, feeling inferior to everybody else. And then eventually it became such a big story that people were actually talking to me about it. Your mum was the Yorkshire Ripper's first victim. Your mum was a prostitute. Is it true? And, and I didn't want to deny my mum. So I said, yeah, yeah. So because it was, then, it was just out there, they're all talking about it. My self-esteem was at rock bottom, no confidence. And that's when I first started considering taking my life. I remember, so I can't remember which year it'll have been, but maybe even before your time, but it, it was the, the Intercity 125 trains came out. It might have been 80, 1980, something like that. Thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll lay down on the local railway track. I knew where I was going to do it. In, in, in Kirtstall, near Kirtstall Brewery, it's now some flats for students. Yeah. There's a railway line with a big metal bridge. You can access that. I knew where to go. I thought, I'll lay down on the track. And I'll, if I lay down on the track and put my neck on the track, I won't feel a thing. I was thinking about that as a child. I'll jump off the local flats. as like high, high rise flats. I could jump off there just because of how I felt about who I was. And, and, and how old were you then? Richard? So that's about, I'd say I was nine. So, my daughter's nine at the time actually yeah. right now. And, and obviously I never did it. I didn't have the guts to do it, but those are the things I used to think about. And, and when you were speaking then, um, as a re resemblance to, uh, to Kez, cause I'm talking to a Yorkshire lad who, who, um, kept, kept birds and stuff, but you, you had a bit of a smile when he, he spoke about pigeons. What's, what's the, obviously I know from, from the, from the talk that you're delivering and stuff, but what's, what's the sort of the, the fascination with pigeons and, and what does that mean to you when you look back? I, and actually I still have the fascination when I see them in, around and about, I'll, I'll take, yeah. I'll take pictures of them and stuff. When I was a child, so in amongst all this, my dad started racing pigeons and keeping greyhounds. So when it came to, so what age will I be? So this is a, a bit of a plus point to the story now. Uh, Sutcliffe's been caught in 1980. Things are getting a bit better. People are stopping to 
stopping talking to me about it. And I went to my new high school. That year, so what's now known as the year nine, we called it the third year, my English teacher, Mr. Hill, encouraged me to take part in the public speaking competition. Bearing in mind, I've got no confidence and they're all better than me. I decided with his encouragement that I would do it. And I spoke about, as you recall, pigeons, because I had to feed the pigeons. So this is like just entering a competition, talk I about anything it, you want. Do you know what I did? Why I did it in the end? I knew how bad I felt about myself. And I knew it was going to take some guts to get on the stage. And I just thought, if I get on stage, maybe it would start helping me with the way I feel about myself. You know, well, help improve it. So I entered. And, and I, I actually, <laughs> so funny. I took a pigeon in with me. And what was beautiful for me was, or fantastic, just me on my journey, is I won the competition. Yeah. And I'm hoping they didn't feel sorry for me and just say, no, let him have it, he's lost his mum. I, I, I actually wanted to win it. So when I go to schools and talk to young people, I talk about, you know, your GCSEs, do you really want to win them? Do you, I, sorry, do you really want to pass them? you got to do some work first. So what I did was I, re I rehearsed my presentation so much that everybody else was just reading from a script and I just waltzed on stage Explained them to talking about pigeons. Got a bit of a giggle from the kids, and I just I just spoke just as I'm speaking now. And with the pigeon, I, I won it honestly. And and you know, and I say this in my talks now. You know, it's not a coincidence that I did that all those 36 years ago. And I'm now one of the busiest motivational speakers in the UK. Two and a half thousand talks. You know, there's a there's a relationship between those two things. And I think there's an important point to make about that about taking that first step. Mm. someone with agoraphobia you know just going to the front door and just standing at the front door then shutting the door and then celebrating that then maybe going walking out to the front gate taking those small steps about whatever it is that's going on for you having that first conversation with somebody with an issue that you've been keeping to yourself it's just taking that first step and that was what I did there and well the rest history well actually it's not as easy I'm making it sound really simple I ended up you remember from the presentation that 22 years ago I ended up in prison. Mm. When I came out of prison, my confidence had taken a kick in. So I'd lo I, I remember I got a job at the Yorkshire Post. I'm, I'm missing bits out here that I think we need to come back to, but I got a job at the Yorkshire Post and I was good on the phones eventually. But I, and I won an award there, but then I became like a supervisor. I had to give these training sessions. I hated it. So despite me win winning that competition age 12, 13, I still hated getting up in front of six, seven people because I had that thing, that thing that I still got, like, and I carry it around, is that I think that people are judging me and thinking negative things about me. So that's what I was going through. I'm all right on the phones because they can't see me, but standing up. So I had to then go get some help with that. And I got some, I probably linked in this morning, actually. I went for some assertiveness training. It was up in Horsforth at a college and, 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 I, and I benefited from that. It, that was the start of me going out, being proactive and doing something, getting some support or help to deal with an issue that I've got. It wasn't the only thing mm. that I did to help me, but we've, we've missed a, mass, a massive important part. Out. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we just jump back to sort of nine, 10 uh, early sort of, um, well, I guess towards the early teen years. Well, then. In, in, I mean, uh, be fair to say things got better in my teens yeah. because I, I no longer feared he was going to kill me. Yeah, because he was caught by this point. He was caught, so that was a massive burden off me. How, how, how did he get caught just jumping into there? Well, he got caught by accident. Um, yeah, he'd been picked up nine times, I think. They'd already he interviewed got interviewed him nine times. And really, in fact, um, they just had the funeral of Andy Laptu, who was the police officer. I met him, actually, for a documentary. But I, um, he, he was the officer that suspected it was him, gave him gave them his details, and it was put, pushed, to one, pushed to one side and told, don't be ridiculous, he's not got a Geordie accent. 
Uh, yeah, there was a hoaxer. There was a the hoaxer time. with a Geordie accent that mm. pretended to be him. So they said, if he hasn't got a Geordie accent, it can't be him. Actually, I was listening out for a Geordie accent when that tape was released. I actually remember that when that you might not have come across that tape recording, but what happened was the police received a recording. So they went everywhere. There was a hotline you could ring and listen to the recording because that was apparently the killer. They went around all social clubs, working men's clubs and such like, and they put it on a, over the tannoy everywhere. I was in, I think it was Kirkstall Liberal Club, not far from that train track, actually, I was going to kill myself on. I was there with my auntie, Isaac, my auntie Vicky and Uncle Isaac. We, we used to go visit them on a weekend and they put this cassette on and we were sat in the room and thinking, I honestly, was like seething. Yeah. That's my mum's killer's voice there. Why am I having to listen to that? Mm. And um, they didn't think to take us out of the room. It was madness. So, so but, but, but as a teenager, that, that wasn't, so as a teenager, we were no longer experiencing the violence at the hands of my father. I, we've skipped over that. I mean, it was horrible at times. He drowned the dog in the bath. He used to beat us with sticks, black and blue. And, which is why I ran away from home a couple of times. I once stepped the streets in a in a um, portaloo and it was, it was a bus shelter. And, but all that had stopped by my teenage years. So th that was great. So things were not... But I still had that inferiority complex within me. But but on the face of it, I was a bit of a cheeky chap at school, you know, joking with the teachers, you know. So things were much better. But I was growing up, you know, going through those teenage years. So just, just before we jump too far ahead, what was it like getting a face, like finding out who it was. Oh, was, was, was that, um, because obviously it's this mysterious, no yeah. one knew. And then when you find out they've got, what, what was that moment like? It's a great question, actually. Seeing, well, first of all, it wasn't the, the, the image that I imagined, but also when I saw his picture, part of me was like, do you know what? It's almost irrelevant who he is. Mm. What's relevant is my mum's not here. But I remember, I, I remember a headline at the time, absolutely delighted. They were absolutely delighted. That was the headline. I thought, what? I, I, of course I can kind of get that, but it was like, I can't put the word delight to anything to do with mum's killer. But, but I do. But anyway, so the, so the teenage years were, were, were much better. And what we found throughout the teenage years, and I hated this, was his picture was there all the time. I hated it. Me and my sister, we wanted him dead. That's how I was back then. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's changed over the years. But I got to 16 and I, I left home. I, I, although my dad wasn't being violent to me, he was being a drunken and he was violent. I remember the last time I saw his violence was he smashed the Christmas tree in a drunken rage over the room. And um, Anyway, I left at 16 and I, 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 I tried to make a, a life for myself, but I didn't have no qualifications. I had low self-esteem Although I might have been a bit of a cheeky chap, inside I felt damaged. My first job was ironing trousers. That's <laughs> ironing trousers. That's all I thought was good for. I just needed to get some income, live with my sister, and eventually, by meeting somebody in the factory that ironed trousers, he said, well, let's join the army. I went, yeah, let's do that. Never considered that. And I eventually got in the army after another job. I was washing plates in a hotel, but I got in the army, and I, and I thought, right now... This is my opportunity to put it all behind me. Nobody's going to know about my mum. Mm. And I lied. I said she died in a car accident. And I got away with that. And I loved it. I loved my basic training. I loved, you know, new relationships. And yeah, that was all right. Posted out to Germany. And it was still all right for a while. So that was late 89. 
So I, actually, it was only there for three or four months. So I think I went out in the August. By late 89, this magazine was published called The Murder Casebook. And uh, it was a series, a weekly series. Edition number one was Peter Sutcliffe. Uh, or the, although on the headline, it was The Yorkshire Ripper. That magazine came back to the regiment and people started asking me about it. Hey, Richard, this is you. McCann, Leeds, Richard and Sonia, the new, the new had a sister called Sonia. Mm. And, oh gosh, I had a bit of a breakdown, shall we say. I, what happened was, I went out on a, on an exercise. It was a, a, an exercise that started on a weekend. Oh, I can't, a two day exercise. That's a short little exercise. The night before the exercise, I got drunk. And on the way back to the town, so I went to the local pub, me and the officers. I thought, I'm on the radio in the morning because I was a signaller. I better get my head down. As I'm walking back, when the air hit me, I just got really, really intoxicated. of like struggling, stumbling everywhere. And then I got this, this thought process is, right, something like, right, now I'm going to leave my mark on society like Sutcliffe did. Do you know, they're all talking about him. Yeah. So what I did was, it's crazy, I went around this German village, probably never seen crime before. Right, what can I do? Right, smash that car's headlights, break into that garage, taking, you know, cans of, don't know what, pouring it over the bonnets of the cars. I nicked a motorbike. I didn't know how to start a motorbike. And I got this motorbike, moped, and I ran down the street with it and jumped on it, expecting it to just start. And that's how, I mean, it fell over. And this German says, are you all right? But he's obviously spotted that was a soldier, a British soldier because in the uniform knocking down windmills and fences. Anyway, I got arrested the next day and uh, it all came out and they placed me onto the, you know, all me, I haven't, I haven't told you this, as a teenager or maybe before Sutcliffe was caught, I was having these murderous fantasies about killing men. I didn't tell, mention this at the presentation. I, I would fantasise about going around West Yorkshire like he did. Right, I'm going to kill men. Somehow I thought in my twisted mind, if I kill men, I'm, I'm settling the score with society. He was killing women, well, I'll kill, and I might even kill him. But what I'll do is I'll kill, I'll plan it so that in the police station, they'll have a big map where the attacks that I'd carried out had taken place. But what I'll do is I'll do it strategically so it'd form a letter R for Richard, like a clue, because I wanted to get caught, but also for Ripper. It just, it's really messed up. Mm. All this came out, and they said, right you've got to go. And they, they initially they placed me under the psychiatric ward of Hanover Military Hospital where, yeah, where they gave me like counselling sessions and, and just went through all, talked it all through and basically they decided uh, they were going to medically discharge me. Said I had a personality disorder, which maybe I have, I don't know. Um, I think I looked into that once. Personality disorder, if I'm not mistaken, a, a maladaptive way of dealing with life stressful situations Actually, maybe I have or had, I don't know. What I do know is I didn't get any counselling, proper counselling. Mm. So they discharged me and I'm age 20. And I guess that was the end of my childhood, me. Mm. Or that chapter of my life. We spoke a little bit about the um, bounce backograph you spoke about. Looking at about, the, sort of the bounce backograph. Oh, right, okay, yeah. We spoke a little bit about that the, the, before, before we started talking. But at that point, did you think... I'm imagining it's hard to see a way forward there. So, you you know, you're you're an inspirational speaker now. You're a motivational speaker. You go into schools, you go into prisons. You 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 motivate, motivate people and you lift people. Mm. So to hear your story, and certainly at that point, I imagine that that sort of breakdown 
it's hard to imagine any way, any way forward. Like, is that how you felt or? No, I, there was other periods in my life where I did feel like that. Yeah. We'll, we'll get onto that. But I remember coming back and thinking, right, what do I, well, actually going, going back to how I thought when my mum died, I, what, what's the positive? Not that I knew about thinking, what's the positive? I didn't know that mm. terminology, but I did certainly find something to be grateful for. All right, she, mum's not been beaten. When I got kicked out of the army, the same thought process kicked in. Actually, now I'm back with my sister. So my sister Sonia was really close with, and I, I missed her when I was in the army. I'm now back with her. And you know what? Maybe the army life wasn't for me. Funnily enough, later that year, they went to the first Gulf War. And you know what? I'm glad I didn't go to the first Gulf War because I know there's countless soldiers that have come back from that with, you know, chemical uh, PTSD, all that stuff. So actually, maybe it was a blessing that I got kicked out when I did. And I then, uh, and by the way, had I gone off the rails, it might have been understandable. But no, I thought, no, I've got, I've got to just do something, be proactive. I got a job. I actually don't share this in my talks because I've only got so much time, but I actually got a job being a private detective. Wow. Do you like a private detective? So yeah. I went for £2.50 an hour. I was sitting outside companies, watching who comes and goes, getting registrations, following women from suspicious husbands that are suspicious that their wife's having an affair. In my little mini, £2.50 an hour. I did that. <laughs> it was mad. So my, my point is, even though it was like, it was like peanuts, I, I did something and then I got, a, I got another job and then and I eventually got a job in a factory, not a factory, a warehouse. It was just stacking boxes in a warehouse. I worked, I missed out. I worked in a shoe shop in the St. John Centre. It was madness. It was horrible. But um, anyway, I got this job. This job that I got was a brilliant opportunity because in every job I've ever done, I've tried to, you know, you know, trying to be the best at it. Even ironing trousers, really competitive, get more, iron more trousers than everybody else. I got this job and, and I just shone in this job because I remember I'm trying to rebuild my life. And I got given this role to run the computer system. And I remember the warehouse manager, now retired Stuart Hardy, saying to me, I've got you this pay rise, Richard. Never forget it. I've told, uh, it was Nick Moresdale, the financial director, maybe, I don't suppose I'll be listening to this, but anyway, he said, I've told Nick that your management material. And I thought, wow, management material, I'm 20. I've just been kicked out of the army. I've got no qualifications. I've got all that turbulent childhood, lost my mum, and you're telling me that I'm management. I believed him. That, so his words changed. I started like standing up a bit straighter. I've got a shirt and tie for work. It was second hand and briefcase. And, but I got a promotion. I got my own flat and things were looking good. But as uh, we, we, we haven't really got time to go into the detail of that bounce back graph that we've just mentioned. Mm. But what I do is I have this exercise that I carry out in my resilience workshops where I get people to, well, I show them my bounce back graph. If you can imagine it, it's like a graph. At the bottom is your age, zero to 50. Uh, and uh, other side, are things going well? That's up the top. Are things going bad? It's like a zigzag. Like, let the stocks and shares go up and down. When things are going down, you're in the red at the bottom half of the graph. And when things are going well, they're up the top half and they're in green. So I, I chart the ups and downs. I forgot why I'm mentioning this now. But so me getting kicked out of the army was a, in the red. Go, things are going bad. But I, I bounced back from that. So, and, and I got a promotion. So I'm in the green now. But as I said to you before we came on to this podcast, after every green in our lives, at some point, there'll be a disappointment, a setback or another challenge. And it wasn't long before um, I was in the red again because I kept getting burgled. I might have even been the only person in this block of flats that had a job. So yeah. I got mechanic, I got burgled three times. I actually became uninsurable 
and I'm sleeping with a big knife under my pillow thinking they might break in whilst I'm here. I was living in fear mm. as I did or as I was when I was a child. Mm. But I met somebody. It's all about your networks, isn't it? It's, you know, you, you only know what you know and you, sometimes you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you're capable of and yeah. you sometimes don't see what's inside that other seeing you. So the person in the block of flats below me, actually they must have had a job because they were looking to buy their own house and they asked me to go with them to look at some of the properties. And I thought, do you know what? They're not much different to me and they're getting a mortgage. So they introduced me to their mortgage lender, the, the in, independent financial advisor, and I got my own house. So if it wasn't for me being burgled, I'd have probably would have stayed there. Because mm. there's nothing wrong with living in rented accommodation, but that's all I knew. So that was normal to me. But all of a sudden, I've been burgled. I'm in a bit of a corner. I'll buy my own house. So my next success was I bought my own house age 24. And I was honestly proud as punch. Nobody in my immediate family has ever bought a house. And I was 24. I thought about my mum looking down, being really proud of her son. Loved it. Got beyond house. Mm. So yeah. that was another, so that's another um, period where things were starting to go well. Mm. And I mean, we, 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 we are jumping around a bit here and there's, there's so many sort of relations that I guess the conversations me and Chris have had over the last few days recording um, Neil Smedley from King Kobe and um, even talking about Chris's play life, life and soul and, and, and the sort of, You've got hindsight now. You've also got hindsight to look back over the, all those those experiences, and I've done it to a degree in my life. Um, but to be able to, to see those, and you even mentioned it, the small steps mm. that you've made, I, I think that is um, a sort of message that you can't really argue with for anyone in, in any situation to make those small steps, mm. whether it doesn't matter how you're feeling really, it doesn't matter how... Um, bad you feel or, or how much you don't want to make them steps or what's happened you can you can argue with comparing to other people mm. to comparing with other people's lives and stuff but I think for 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 you personally to take those small steps small steps of improvement I guess in your life it's you know that's that's a message that's sort of ringing true in a lot of conversations that we've had and a lot of things you've mentioned examples there opening up a conversation um, trying out new experiences meeting that 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 fella who's sort of shown you that you could get a mortgage yourself. Mm. Um, and I, you've got to be a little bit daring, I guess, to, to meet new people. You've got to be a bit, bit daring to, to take those small steps as well. So Absolutely. It's, it, one of the things I talk about is, is courage. Mm. Courage, I mean, courage when I got on the stage age 13, but also courage to reach out. It took me years. Because, you know, there's a lot of stigma. There still is. I know, and it's great. We're all talking about it now. There's mm. still a lot of stigma mm-hmm. for people with mental health issues. So to talk... You know, reach out and get counselling and such like. It does take us, particularly for men. Yeah, it's it's not a macho thing, or it, well, it should be, and it is for some people. But it's you know, you men, you, sh- you shouldn't cry and all that. Actually, that's not true. Mm. We, 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 we've got we're just as emotional as women. Yeah, you know, and the more we can talk about these things and be open and 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 find that courage to face up to what's going on and be open, the sooner you're going to be able to start taking those steps and. And making things easy for yourself. It's worth saying as well that externally there may appear small steps, but for people in those moments, they actually are quite huge. Like yeah. when you said you first went on stage or you mentioned an agoraphobic opening the door and going outside the first time, mm. it might be a small step in the grand scheme of mm. things, but for them in that moment, it's actually a huge achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and celebrate that. Yeah. 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 And celebrate your successes along the way. There's a guy, an author, what's his name? Darren Hardy. Darren Hardy. 
American. Yes, yeah. and yeah. he's got a book called The Compound, Compound Effect. Effect. That's yeah. it. And that's what it's about. Yeah. It's that one small step is just one small step. And yes, it might be big to you, but when you've done a few of those small steps, it might take you two years. Mm. When you look back, you go, oh gosh, I have come yeah. a long way. Yeah. Because yeah. a small step might be all you can achieve in that moment. And if that's the case, mm. achieve that. And, and also sometimes we take a step back to get to where we're going to be. Uh, yeah. What, what, what we haven't talked about is the big the big step back that I took after I got my house. So this we, is 24, 25 and you get your house. 24, 25 and because oh, I'd left all my friends in the army that I'd met. In fact, I left all my friends in Leeds, in Leeds when I joined the army. Right. So I didn't have any contact with my school friends. Then when I left the army, I left them out to the first Gulf War. So I was like, I didn't have many friends. Mm. So work was my focus. <laughs> Some of the guys at work were taking drugs. And I, I remember it. I won't mention any names, but this individual, and I'd give them a hard time about what they were doing. So I was like Mr. Sensible with my little ginger moustache because I was like trying to be a man. <laughs> and um, gosh. <laughs> Not on a moustache for a while then. I haven't. No, I, I, I haven't. Um, and I remember this one individual saying to me, said, when I was giving him a hard time, he said, don't knock it till you tried it. I went, shut up, give us it here. And he gave me this uh, little white envelope, a wrap of speed. And I took it, you know, I'm just being honest here. I'd never felt anything like it. Bearing in mind all the dark stuff I've had to deal with. And he gave me this powder. I, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was, it was incredible. Obviously it was not, not real. Well it, well, it felt real. What he failed to tell me is what I'd feel like when the drugs wore off. And I was sobbing my heart out on my own. I was like, I was in a dark place. But despite that, when I got back to work, I felt like I was dying. And he was saying to me, how oh, was it then? I went, yeah, 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 we're great. And tried to be one of the guys. Yeah. And I started going out with these guys. And I, I, I basically found it irresistible the buzz, the, 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 the warmth, the love, the, all that, you know, that inferiority complex. Uh, well, most of the time, because I had a few blips where I, gosh, lost, lost, lost the plot completely. But apart from those, it was, I forgot about all that. I was like, I was like, I missed the height of the party. And I, and I, I did that for two or three years. But I, what happened next was I started dealing the drugs. I didn't see it as something wrong. And I started, you know, Maybe I was a bit of an entrepreneur. I don't know. I thought, I'll, I'll buy them and I'll make a few quid out of it. Then I lost my job and I could get a, a weekend out even though I didn't have a job. And well, that's the start of the, the next down, uh, the period in the in the red, as I call it, in my bounce back graph because I got arrested for dealing drugs. I then got sent to prison. What's incredible is, I don't know. But yeah, it is. It's incredible. I got sent to the very same prison that Peter Sutcliffe was sent to when he was first arrested. Obviously he wasn't there when I was there, but I thought, what have I done? How has this happened? I've seen I'm in the prison for years and never in a month of Sundays would I think that I would go down a path that would take me there. But you know what? When I got arrested, that little voice kicked in again. This is meant to happen. <laughs> You're involved in drugs. This is meant to happen. So go in there, sort your head out, stay out of the trouble, come out and change your circle of friends. That's what I told myself. Mm. So, and I went in and, and it, it, it could have been worse. I got a job on the hospital wing. So I was, I mean, they've all got cells in, um, um, TVs in the cells now, but back then you didn't. But because I was given this job on the hospital wing as a hospital cleaner for £2.80 a week, you, it was a six man cell. So it was, and with a TV in, it, it was brilliant. We, we even, am I allowed to say this? 
one of the officers brought a curry in for us. We got a curry one night. Oh, we oh, oh, that like, was that like, was that magic after yeah, like being it there? It was onion badges and stuff. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that was, that was a tough time, especially, it always one. I, I forget his name, but there was, there was a man that was convicted of murder. He murdered a man, a, 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 I think it was a Jewish man in Chapel Town. And he got brought in. I'd had a running with him about a year earlier. I nudged his car by accident. It's my fault, you know, in Leeds, it's a nudged his car. All right, hands up, jumps out of the car. He jumps out. Right, go on, baseball bat him. Baseball bat him. Shit, who's going to baseball bat me? This is in Leeds City Centre. And do you know, I, I do believe, and I, I have some really strange beliefs, by the way, about the universe and how it all works. But at that moment, a police car goes past. So I flag him down. He comes and deals with it. He didn't even have any insurance. Months later, he murdered a man in Leeds. Right? And he comes onto the wing, onto the hospital wing, gets marched in. And because I had this job as a hospital cleaner, we got to go to the cells to give them the food. And he went, yo, I'm going to have you. And... So I had to stay away from him. But he was, was in a cell on the hospital wing. We, scary times, scary times. So, so even that, even that, that incident with him could have been much worse, couldn't it? I do believe there's someone looking after me yeah. up there. Yeah. Um, so so that, that was a massive setback on my journey of trying to rebuild my life. But I got through it, came out. How long were you in there for? So I got a year. A year. Could okay. have been worse. So mm, yeah. you served six months of that, six months on licence. How did you get caught to go in? Can you remember? Yeah. I got, I got set up. Right. I got set up by a police informer. You know, I know it is. I know. I met many people inside that been set up by him. So I'd actually stopped doing the. I'd actually stopped doing the dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. But he came to me and he said, well, "We want so we came with his dad and it was a bit, a bit of a gangster." And I was twenty eight. I was I was too scared to say no to him. I did it and whew, got arrested yeah. in Leeds City Centre. It was a setup. Went in, but hey ho, it happened, and I came out determined to rebuild my life but it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be which took me to probably my darkest one of my darkest days because I've now got a criminal record and when you go for a job you've got to disclose that so you can imagine can't you yeah yeah this is the only warehouse work I was going for yeah yeah worked in warehouses and uh, so where have you been for the last six months well I got involved in drugs and mm. I had him even saying to me you're perfect for this role but we, we can't set you on no one's going to set me on I mean, that's another issue, by the way, for, for, for those that have made mistakes about how we, how some people condemn them for the rest of their life. You know, if you're going to try and change the world and, re, you know, stop people re-offending, you, you, somebody's got to give them an opportunity to to work. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I, I, I ended up back in court, but this time it was a civil court getting that house repossessed and given six weeks to get a job. No one gave me a job. I can't say I was, I don't know, I, I don't say... That was clinically depressed. And listen, I'm not a professional. I don't know what, what, how you term them. But I just could not see a way forward. I've got a criminal record. I'm losing my house now, back in the flat. My girlfriend, oh, I didn't tell you, my girlfriend dumped me whilst I was in prison. I thought she was the love of my life. She dumped me. What, what is the point? What is the point is what I thought. And I said to my sister, I, I thought, I've got to say goodbye to her. I said, Sonia, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I've had enough. She knew what I meant. And she said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll come with you. And what actually happened, she was with a violent guy at the time. And she's, I said, well, let's not do, it, do anything stupid. Let's think this through. What I meant was I, I didn't want to cause any pain to either of us. I, didn't, so I thought I'd better look into this. The very day we discussed it, she went and got drunk. She was an alcoholic. I didn't, I didn't tell you. 
she was uh, she was basically abused by my mum's boyfriend. She kept it to herself, and it explained quite a lot when she finally told me. But um, she got drunk and then took. She told me in the region of thirty paracetamol tablets, and that was what brought me to my senses. I thought, what the, what have I done? So I got to stay where she was at home. I said, stay where you are. I ran the ambulance service, given her the address. What actually happened was they went there. She wouldn't go into hospital. So the ambulance service ran me back and said, can you come down? And I thought, oh God, I'll get in trouble. I've probably committed a crime, suicide, my idea. But I went down. We got into hospital. They took a blood test, but because she, she was drunk, she wouldn't stay. I remember this scene. It was, it was horrible, but I had to do it. Going back to that courage. They took a blood test. It was going to take a couple of hours for them to get the results to mm. see whether or not she needed to go on a drip. They'd go on this thing called a cab and drip for... 48 hours. But she couldn't bother waiting for it. Ah, oh, I'm having enough of this, she said. Mm. This is in A&E. So she is like wanting to go go out of A&E. And so I had to stand up and I went, Sonia! Not shut in front of everybody. But I love you, you're going to die. And it was horrible. But she still went. And I went, listen, I'll have to nurse. I'll have to go with her. But I gave her my number. I said, ring me if it's bad. Mm. They rang me. Said, it is bad. You better get her back in here. She's done, she's done damage. So then I pleaded with her to get her into hospital and uh, and the, and they saved her. Mm. That, her doing that was my kind of, I don't know, saving grace or whatever. It was it was the thing that got me to see sense. And you know what, as I said earlier about the universe or what, the powers that be looking after me, maybe even looking after, us, looking after us all, but I went for my last interview and I got it. The last interview, no one gave me a job. He gave me a job and I thought, and by the way, this was yards from where my mum had a last drink and I thought there was something in that. Maybe it was my mum creating this scenario. And and that was 1997, it's 22 years ago. He got, gave me a job and, well, that's it. That's the start of the, 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 the turnaround. Wow. Yeah, there's some in that, mate. And um, I guess that sort of thinking that, that you've touched upon was was instrumental along, alongside all those events. Um, you know, for you to go into 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 prison and, and to sort of have that time to recollect yourself and to and reflect, yeah. Reflect. Um that's a big period in your life and and you know, there's some stuff that's been that has gone on there, but you know I guess I guess the the next point in that is, and I, I know you mentioned with the the bounce back graph and stuff like that, and and it always comes in life. People know the the highs and the the, yeah. the peaks and the troughs come. But um, how did you make the transitioning from from getting that job into something that that you do now? You go speak to and and, and sort of good question. Mm. Um, and, and that that job was great, by the way, because. It's a little family-run company, and and you know, as I said earlier, I'm still a bit sensitive at times. They they, they knew I was a little bit sensitive, and, and they, they they accepted me for who I was. But I did well, got promoted, so things are going well. And then, well, actually, when I first started working there, when I you know when I was on a pretty well, I wasn't earning what I was when I left. So to supplement my wage, that's when I got the job at the Yorkshire Post telesales, and that's when I got the assertiveness training which led to the counselling because what I haven't talked about, what we haven't talked about is throughout the journey, all the failed relationships that I've had. Honestly, I'd, I'd meet a relation, I'd, I'd go into a relationship and I think, oh, this is it. I met the one. But th that internal voice, that 
is it imposter syndrome? Is it whatever? I thought I wasn't good enough to be with them. So, so somewhere or another, I'd bring about an end. I'd be unfaithful. I'd have one night stands or I'd push, just push them away. I'd be accusing them of being unfaithful. All, all sorts of messy stuff. Um, so I've, I got some counselling after the assertiveness training because she was a counsellor. And, and that this helped. This is around after time of prison. This is after, yes, after prison. Two, yeah. two years after prison. Part, part of my rebuilding. Yeah. And, and, and I did... I did actually, I just remembered actually before I went to prison because I knew I had this problem with relationships. I tried to get some... What do they call it? Hypnotherapy. Mm. And, and, and I remember saying to me, you need to get off the drugs. So maybe getting off the drugs, going to prison, getting off the drugs was then the building block the building too. blocks to start and get the real help that I needed yeah. so it, when you look back and you join all the dots mm. it's almost like some of these things are meant to be and you, and you might say well how, how, how? you can't say that about your mum though but, but actually I can because if it wasn't for my mum being killed by him in the way that she did I wouldn't be the person I am today I wouldn't be doing the work I would not be sat here today and going even further than that my children would not exist they weren't, they weren't with it because I'd have gone down a different avenue and maybe met somebody else. My children would not exist. It's mad. I know it's a bit deep for some people, and especially guys that don't like that stuff. But um, so things were starting to go well with the counselling and et cetera. And just the, the, the count, oh, and I changed my circle of friends. One of the things, actually, I was on the radio this morning as I drove in here. Uh, somebody was talking about your social networks. You've got to be with people. So I changed my network and I, started hanging around with more positive people. I know you might laugh, but I took up salsa dancing. I don't know if I mentioned that in my nice, talk. I took nice. up salsa dancing. I thought about it. I thought about it. Honestly, one of the best. <laughs> I've done a few. Have you? Have you? Oh, my girlfriend's go. birthday was a salsa dance uh, class, so apparently I was quite amusing during it. Yeah. yeah, yeah we're all good dancers and actors, and then there was me. But yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fair play to you. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not. It's like anything. you got to take that first step. Yeah. The first Literally step. in salsa training. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then seven after that. But... <laughs> And, you know, joking aside, it took some guts to, to go into that salsa class mm-hmm. when you don't know what you're doing. But I, I absolutely love it. In fact, just, I was just down two weeks ago, down at the wardrobe. There was a 20-year anniversary of uh, Casa Latina. And it's funny how you... I, mean, I don't do it so much now because of my work and, and family life, but it's funny how the movies come back to you. Um, but but the, the point is, I changed my circle, my network. Mm-hmm. But in 2000... I started going on these salsa holidays. Let me tell you, fantastic. Oh. So things are going well. And then out of the blue, as it happens in life, or some counselling ended in 2002, that year, like three months later, I get the call from my younger sister, Angela. Sonia has just stabbed her boyfriend. Uh, she didn't kill him. And I thought, oh God, she's going she's gonna to go to prison now. She's not going to better cope with that. So that's when I decided, I'm going to swear there, sod that, I'm going to write a book. I've got to tell the world what we've, bloody been through because we've like been abandoned no one knows we've hid away from it been ashamed of it and all and she got released eventually from Putty Police Station and I remember writing down I've got the, I've got the paperwork just bullet points about what we'd been through and, and then I'll cut a long story short the police stopped the charges I stopped writing the book I actually stopped writing the book no one knows that I stopped writing that book but on one of my salsa holidays in 2003 I met this guy by chance there's no such thing as chance Craig Shergold, who's been in the Guinness Book of Records for having the most amount of get well cards sent to him. He had, I think it's 350 million get well cards sent to him. And I thought, I know this, I, I know you. This is a, it's not even on the Salsa holiday, he's just hanging around the hotel. Mm. 
I said, I know you, I know that story. He said, oh yeah, my mum's just written a book and it's going to be a film. I went, I'd like to meet your mum. And he introduced me to his mum the next day, Marion, Marion Shergold, Shergold. And I told her, she told me about how her book happened. And I said, oh, I started writing this book and I told her about what it was about. She went, Richard, you've got to write that book. And once again, going back to the universe, I think the universe put him in my path and I had the thought to speak to him. So that would be given the motivation or inspiration or the nudge, just continue writing the book. And I did. Came out in 2004 and, and that was scary. Because remember, I've lied about who I am. I'm ashamed of who I am. Mm. And I thought, I was just going to harm my future career prospects. I've been to prison, I'm telling people, because I'd lied, you see. Anyway, it came out, it, that book liberated me it, because, you know, all, all too often, and, and, and it's linked to mental, mental health, you know, we keep it to ourselves and I, I'd kept my life who I really was to myself and that, that's not healthy. So I, the book came out. And just, do you find that? And that led to the speaking, sorry. So, and that led to the speaking. Right. Okay. Sorry, mate. I was just going to, I just wanted to jump in. Do, do, you, do you find that because you liberated yourself writing that book, that was easier with the new network of people because they would have supported it as opposed to pull you down or drag you away from it. And, and you had that sort of, it's accessible in your mind to do it because you, you'd had those that support me, these different people, done the salsa. Funnily enough, yes. Mm. Because I w- a lot of the people at salsa I'd shared with them because I was writing the book while we were there. I shared with a few people and they were giving me support. That's a great thing. And you've been yeah. through In fact, the book launch itself. Some family came, but there's loads of people from salsa that came to that. So, but I guess it just was that uh, confirmation from others that one, one, I've been through hell and it's no, no wonder you've done been to prison and whatever else and thought the way you did and ruined your relationship. So it's, oh gosh, it, it, I'm not such a bad person after all. Um, so I kind of got that from people, but then it came out. I got it from everywhere, you know, inundated by people uh, saying how great it was that I got through that, through that. But even better than that, how they'd been helped by reading what I'd been through. Didn't expect that. So, and, and every, and I still get it. Still get it now. All these, it's 15 years since that first book mm. came out, Just a Boy. I still get letters from people and emails and LinkedIn posts, whatever about how they've been helped by reading what I'd been through. I so, saw on Twitter the other day, someone had put something about your book and they'd found it in a library or something. And yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing this thing at the moment where I'm giving away. 44 day, yeah, it's yeah. 44 years since mum died. Yeah. And she died on the week for, I don't think we get talking about this, but anyway, she died on the 44th week of the year. Peter Silkcliffe lived at number 44 the night he killed my mum. Not that I knew this as a child, but as a child and as a young, young adult, me and Sonia, we loved 44. We loved it and we see it, see it everywhere. And then when I looked into it, I went, let me just check that. This is about the time my book came out. Gosh, mum died in the 44th week of the year. And then I stumbled across the fact that he lived at number 44. So it's like that, almost like got a deep, deep spiritual meaning to me. So for that reason, I'm giving away 444 books and we're at 10 different places, giving, just dropping off hiding these books oh, it's in memory okay, yeah so they said they'd found it in the library in the li- or something I think uh, in Wakefield or somewhere or I can't remember where yeah, now yeah. But so I've done Wakefield I've done Manchester yeah, yeah. I did Coventry at the weekend and I did what else I've just been to Bradford I did Bradford So and I'm going to Harrogate on Sunday so I'm just dropping that it's in memory of my mum because my latest book Just a Man which is a completely different book it's the last 12 years of my life it's we're getting into some spooky territory now, but this book, although it's about the, the last 12 years of my life, 
I found the courage to speak about some of my spiritual beliefs about how it's all interconnected, about it's all meant to be. And that comes from like the 44th week of the year, Sutcliffe at 44, his wife called Sonia, my sister's called Sonia. I think there's more to this world than we can fully explain. And that thought process means that when I think about some of the tragedies that have happened in my life, they're a little bit easier to cope with, a little bit easier to accept. Maybe it was all meant to be. Maybe this, I know you're a, a screenwriter. Maybe this is some kind of big play yeah. that was mapped out before I even were born, you know? Mm. And it's crazy, those thoughts, but I've been getting loads and loads of them recently. Um, yeah, it's, it's madness. And I think it's because it's the 44th anniversary. Yeah, but if we could just... Because obviously it's, it's hard because obviously you said you've grown up with the, you know, a lot of people talk to you about what happened to you when you were five and six and that yeah. must be a burden. And obviously this podcast isn't about that because you in your own right are, you know, a great person inspiring people. Um, but you mentioned earlier that there was a time in your teens where you wanted to kill him in early 20s and you said um, that that had changed or that, that was how you were then implying that that's been a journey as well. So... You know, going to where you are now, um, how has your feelings towards um, him shifted? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, what happened was, so for another, one of the organisations that I speak for, although I've not done recently, but I used to speak for an organisation called The Forgiveness Project. They contacted me after my book came out, not because I'd forgiven, but the, they don't they don't preach forgiveness. What they want to know is have people forgiven? Why have you? Have you? Have you not? Why haven't you? It's just a discussion. So they interviewed me and, and got my thoughts on forgiveness. Going into prisons, I'd share my story, give my thoughts on forgiveness, which is no way, and leave it at that. Then they then they'd work with the inmates in prisons for three three days. In 2010, they invited me to this first conference that they were having with Archbishop Desmond Tutu as the the guest. So I went along. It was crazy. So I went along and be tough. Days before my tooth had come out, you know, my front tooth, at the, it actually just disintegrated. So I was walking around talking like a yobbo that had been in a fight in a bar. And I went down and because I was one of their contributors, I could go into this, um, like, like not green room, but this room where that some special guests could maybe meet Desmond Tutu. Mm. And I, I couldn't speak to him because I, I had the tooth and he said, oh, I'm not doing that. He's going to think, right, Anyway, but anyway, but I sat through this presentation and he was fan. Fantastic. Well, there was a number of speakers, actually. Um, there's another speaker. She'd be great guest. Jo Berry. She, her father was killed in one of the IRA bombs at the Brighton Hotel back in the 80s. And she forgave the killer, uh, the bomb maker, um, uh, uh, who killed her father. Gosh. And so she was on the panel as well. But Desmond Tutu spoke and I'm sat there and my tooth missing. And, and he just started sharing his thoughts on forgiveness and in particular, the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in South Africa, which he was chairing. And he described, this is the scene that really changed my thinking. He described this scene why, where these um, white officers were marched into this big auditorium where obviously there was families there that had lost people and were angry and such like. And he described how this white officer turned to the crowd and said, yes, it was me, I, I gave the orders. This is to, to be yeah. able to kill people or to... So he, he gave the orders for the soldiers to do the, the carry out the atrocities. Or, yeah, yeah. And then he, but then he said, he said this after a pause, he said, um, please forgive me. And then he described how somebody started clapping, then somebody else started clapping, then somebody else started clapping, somebody else started clapping. And until they were all applauding 
these men. I guess they were signifying that they'd found forgiveness, that they wanted to move on and um, through dialogue rather than violence, find a way through that. And I'm on the edge of my seat listening to this guy, but it was his final words which helped me. He said, you can't force a person to forgive another, but when it occurs, and he said it with pauses, it was beautiful, when it occurs, it has the capacity to change a situation. In those words, in those pauses, I thought, yeah, gosh, I've been angry for years. We, we concocted a plan, me and Sonia, she was going to write to him. Because she was called Sonia Newlands, that's mum's maiden name, she'd write to him, become his pen friend, go in and visit him and kill him. That was our plan. And this is not as kids, this is a young adult. I can't bring my mum back, is what I thought. But I can change the situation by letting go of the anger. And I had a right to be angry, but I decided in, in that moment, I'm, I'm letting go. It was almost like, actually, because I'd worked with the Forgiveness Project for a few years, I had considered, am I supposed to be forgiving here? I met some, um, I met Marion Partington, whose sister was murdered by Fred West. And she'd forgiven Fred the West. And I th so, I, so I had thought, gosh, she, if she can do that, maybe I should. But I've not found the courage to let, mm. to forgive him. But because Desmond Tutu was saying it, for some reason I thought, no, I'm going to do that. So I did in that moment. And I was like, only about the tears. It was a beautiful moment. This is not about Peter Sutcliffe. It's about how I feel about what he did. So it's about me and my feelings and, and my future, in fact. And I let it go that day. Beautiful day, beautiful moment. And, and what was great was I was able to thank him because we were told to stay where we were. There were 600 people there. She said, there'll be gridlock. Just stay where you are. Applaud him. His limousine's outside. I raced out after him and I shouted, excuse me. And I said, you don't know what you've just done. And he turned around and he says, yes. I said, I said um, you just helped me forgive the man that murdered my mum as a child. No, I didn't tell him anything about who it was. I just, because he was getting in his mm. car. He just hugged me. He just hugged me. You know, like, 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 a, like a father might hug a son. He just hugged me. And he said, thank you. Got in his car. I didn't even go back inside. I just thought, that's, that's why I came. And I came, I just got a tube back to London, uh, to King's Cross and came home to Leeds. So it might be a bit odd for some people to hear that I've forgiven. I think forgiveness is different for different people. And I also think actually, it's a bit like the, 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 the tide, you know, the tide goes out, comes back in again, but it's always there. The water's always there. And it's like forgiveness. My thoughts on forgiveness are there. Like the thoughts of love from my father were always there. Even what he did. I still eventually, I forgave him when, um, oh gosh, so much I could say. I forgave him eventually in 2007. And so, that was about me because I was angry about what dad had done. And so I forgave Sutcliffe that day. What it means to me is I now no longer feel angry. That's what it means to me. I don't send him, you know, if you think about what, what Christians might say, and I'm not being religious, but they might say to, to forgive might be to, to, to go and speak to that person and or write to them. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not mm. there. I just let go of the anger and that's good for me and my future. That's a really, really powerful message. I think. Yeah. The, yeah. I imagine that's, just clearing the path for you to live the life you, you have been living. Um, that's allowed you to, to go and to go and do this. It's, it's, he's not going to gain any benefit from you doing that for yourself or, uh, you know, you're not giving him anything. You're just adding to what you have in your life from that action, from letting it happen, I guess. I don't, I don't imagine it's something that 
you probably thought about trying trying it or you, you thought oh, I need to forgive to feel better or whatever but I imagine it was like a a moment in that way mm. just you let it happen I don't know yeah that's yeah. exactly it seems like you can't force it it yeah. just it happens but I had been thinking about it and then I thought you know what no I'm going to do mm. this and uh, well it, it was an instant, instantaneous thing as soon as he went it can change a situation I thought yeah yeah boom done mm. And it helps me. Like I, somebody did something to me at the weekend, and uh, oh, I, f- I felt like throwing this guy down the stairs for what he was saying to me. Really obnoxious, arrogant idiot. And I, I went, you know what? I'm not going to continue this conversation. Um, mm. And so I'm going to take myself away from you and leave it at that. And I walked away. And uh, and I can let that go. So me doing that can help me with my more minor things. It's also helped my family. My son, I didn't think I'd talk about this to be fair, but my son turned around to, I was speaking for West Yorkshire Police a few years ago, probably two years ago. And I was saying to my son, I said, oh, um, it's interesting that I'm speaking for West Yorkshire Police. They'll probably enjoy this talk. I mean, well, why, what's different about that? I mean, well, you don't realise that West Yorkshire Police was the police force that was looking after Suc- uh, looking for Sutcliffe before he was arrested. And he went, do you know what, Dad? He said, I, I think I've forgiven him as well. This is my wow. son. How... Now how, old, how old is he? Well, he's now 11. It'll be nine at the time. What a beautiful thing for someone to say. I went, I went, so I went to explore. Went, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, well, it, it probably had something happened to him in his childhood. He said, he might have had his mum murdered. I said, you know what, son? He said, he didn't have his mum murdered, but things did occur in his life that made him the way he is. I said, but that's just lovely to hear. So, so he's only thinking like that. Because he knew what I, because I've, I've explored this with my kids because I'd forgiven. Isn't that a great mm. knock-on effect? And that, to, so to have that capacity in his head, that, that'll serve him well in life going mm. forward and maybe minimise the risk of him, you know, um, keeping things on his mind that we can let go. So we, we hang on to things. I hated my dad for years. I hated him. I, I hate, Even though if you read my first book, right, it says in the acknowledgements, my dad did some horrible things, but you know what? I've forgiven him. Even though it says that, and then I didn't forgive him. This took more time. No, it, it took probably the worst thing that I've experienced in my life for me to forgive him. Worse than losing my mum. And that was on the 19th of December when my sister Sonia finally took a life. Mm. That was more painful than losing my mum. Simply because she's been there throughout the whole journey. Mm. We were like soulmates. We even considered taking our, our lives. For her to do that was the most painful. Honestly, it was the most painful thing I've experienced. I had to go with my other sister, Angela, to tell my dad and to see him crumble. That's when I found the empathy to forgive him. I actually asked for forgiveness of him. Do you know for writing my book? Because I, I wrote. I thought I did. I thought I wrote the book for the right reasons and. I didn't, I didn't um, take into account how that would impact on my father. It's done now anyway, and, and I did it, and, and, and it is what it is. Um, so I asked him to forgive me for doing that that day, and uh, it, took some, it took some coming to terms with that. I, in fact, still, still come to terms with that. Is, is, and I think you mentioned the presentation, your, your dad passed away, did he? Um, not dad, so long ago, were it? Well, it's, it's five years now. You know, five years. My dad, five, my dad, yeah, so... That was a weird one as well. And I, I, I want to share this in the talk that you heard, but 
My dad sometimes used to drink at a pub called the Stick and Twist outside the Merrion Centre near the big Leeds Arena. Cheap beer, so he'd have his, you know, he's retired now. And, and I sometimes would drive out, out of the car park and I'd see him there and I'd beat my own and um, he would give me a wave and I'd beat my own. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't see me. And I would just normally just drive off, double yellow lines. But I got this inkling to, no, pull over, go see your dad. So I, pull, I drove out, I just pulled over on double yellows and I went up the steps and um, across to where the, this pub was and... And I was just talking to him. He said, oh, hi, how are you doing, Dad? And I was just going out to Iran to speak. I was, I've been all around the world. And I was just going out to Iran like a few days later. And he was just telling me that he's just, he's just got himself a new flat. He's going to be moving in. And, um, and I could feel, uh, uh, maybe it was just me, inferiority complex, but I could feel some of his friends inside looking out of the pub thinking, oh, that's him that wrote the book about his dad. And the book wasn't about my dad, to be fair. Yeah. Anyway, and then he got up and you know, for the first time, he, he, he just liked, liked Tutu, actually. He threw his arms around me. My dad didn't do that. My dad would just ruffle your head, say, are you all right, son? Mm. He stood up and he, he hugged me. He said, I love you, son. And I said, I love you, dad. And um, and he died two weeks later. Why did I stop? Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I did find a little bit of uh, forgiveness for him because mm. I, I had him at least back in my life for a few years. Mm. That was some, there's some journey that, that's that's led you up to this point, Richard. And I, I just want to yeah. say, like, I know you did the presentation stuff, and I get from from you that it comes from the most honest place mm. that it is. You know, whatever time that may be. Um, and I appreciate you coming and sitting down with us and being honest and, and talking. And because there's, as as you will imagine, there's people that that do put out motivational messages and talk about the life journey but they'll make it black and white you know the black will be the start of life and, and the white will be the the good times the, that's, mm. that's forever lasting I think people put that out very often and man, I appreciate you, you coming and, and, and speaking to us like this and, and, and sharing your story um, what sort of messages you mentioned Iran Iran, Iran there what sort of messaging what, what sort of transition have you made to to when you go and speak you know if you see Shay's story but anything that you can translate into other people's lives, I think we can get a big picture of, 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 of what that may be. But, you know, anything that, that you can share from experiences, from you going to share your story, um, reactions that people had, and, and, and what, you, what you find best to share with them too. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, did, I speak to different people. And there's, there's, there's different reasons that people ask me to speak, like the Thrive Law thing. Is it Thrive Law? Yeah. yeah the Thrive Conference, sorry. And that was about mental health. I don't often get to speak about mental health. I get to do the motivational. I, I call mm. it the I can presentation, you know. I can. Here's yeah. what I went, and it, it's just my story. We don't we don't give them any tools. Obviously I'll, I'll 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 speak about you know reaching out and getting some support. That's one of my key things, ask for help. Mm -hmm. But in my resilience workshop, I do take the I can word or words and I, and, I, and I create like four four things that have helped me that I believe can help others. And, and I'm not saying, by the way, everything that's worked for me will work for you. Mm -hmm. But these are the things. So the I is, is I did touch on this earlier, but it, it could always be worse. Please don't say that to someone that says, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. You don't say it could always be worse. You choose your moments. But it could have been worse. I could have found my mum that morning. Couldn't I? It could have been light. I don't think I, I don't think I would have been to bounce back from that, seeing my mum's body. I know a guy and he's given me, permission to share this, um, the taxi driver, his wife died in childbirth. So their 22 year old daughter's never even seen the mum. I had six years with my mum. So it could always be worse. 
and you know be grateful what you've got you know in that you know by the way being grateful it, it, it just it they've done uh, I ain't got time to go into it now, but I've got research here. When you write down and you focus on what you're grateful for, it changes. People are happy, you sleep better, you're more content with life. So be grateful for what you've got. It could be worse. In NLP, not that I've studied NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, but have you come across it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, there's a thing called reframing a situation. Mm. Is change. That's what it is. Yeah. Taking that situation, like, like getting kicked out of the army. Do you know what? All right, I'm not in the army, but I'm back with my sister. Mm. And, and and I'm still alive. Yeah. So so it could be worse. Uh, the C is cultivating optimism, being optimistic. Optimistic. I've got time for this, but optimistic people live longer. Mm. I'm fifty. I don't look fifty. You age slow when you're optimistic. Can't so, believe you're fifty. I'm fifty. I'm fifty in November <laughs> in a couple of weeks. So it's mad. Is it mad? Yeah, it? I don't yeah. look fifty, do I? No. No. So there's a thing called the Telomere Effect. It's a fantastic book. Uh, there's um a Nobel prize was won for this research that when you're optimistic on average, anyway, you live longer, mm -hmm. you're healthier. So being optimistic, seeing that glass as half full, not half empty is good for you. It slows down yeah. the aging process. You heal quicker and such like, uh, the A is, um, accept things for what they are. When you get kicked out of the army or I'm in prison, I have to embrace it. I have to say, right. Okay. It is what it is. Mm. Accept things for what they are, but also accept the emotion for what it is. So men, us men, we don't like to be emotional. It's a big one, that. A lot of us. Mm. We, want to, we want to put on that brave face. Do you know what? It's okay to cry. That is a natural process. So when I come talk about acceptance, accept the situation for it is, but not worse than it is, but also accept the emotion for what that is. It's a natural process. Let it out. Let it out. The end in the I can acronym when it comes to resilience is to the need to focus. If I, if we went back to my bounce back a graph, the ups and the downs, and we've all got them, and if I put a line down the middle and took away all the joys and blacked it all out and, all, and only looked at all those setbacks, that is not good. You've got, you got to be careful what you focus on, mm. but also focus on what you can do. Mm. Going out for a run, just going out for a run, networking with people, asking for support and help get some psychotherapy, read a book, listen to some music, all these things send, send chemicals around, the feel good chemicals around your body. There are things, so you focus, the end is you need to focus on the good things in life, but also need to focus on what you can do about that situation. Mm. That's my little uh, real I like that. thoughts, I suppose. Really, <laughs> um, really useful. Yeah. I mean, echo what Stevie said. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's uh, yeah, it's quite a humbling one. I think it's one. Um, I hope a lot of people can, can get a lot from. I think um, I have, I think that person sat here, you know, I think it's, yeah. it's, the way you shared it and, and, and the sort of depth you went into and, and, and the honesty like you the honesty. On, because I think some people aren't that brutally honest with mm. themselves at all parts in their life and yeah you've shared well you've, you've shared a lot with us so um, mm. yeah any anything that you can you mentioned a few books there and you mentioned like the, the sort of the spiritual stuff that you're onto and looking at and sort of connecting with your life anything that you can sort of leave with people to say I read this book, it, you know, it massively helped me or anything that you're looking at now to do and that, that you might want to share or... I, I honestly believe but more than my first book, which was the big book, that was the 11 languages, half a million copies, number one bestseller. I mean, that's great. And that's, that's me, you know, how I dealt with what I went through. But my latest book, the third in the trilogy, Just a Man, that is the book that is special because that's the book that helps people look at their challenges differently because it's got a spiritual element. You know, I give it, I give it to people that have lost loved ones and say, read that, mm. read, read that because there's so many, dare I say it, miracles that's happened in my life that make me believe 
that actually when our loved ones go, it's not the end. I know, I know we didn't plan to talk about that, but it's where I am and it's where I'm at. And it's what I'm talking about. It's what I'm writing about now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, there's more to this world that we can fully explain. We're going to be all right. Pain is part of life. It yeah. is. It can't just be great all the time because then you wouldn't know it's great because mm. it'd just be like, this is just how life is. Yeah. It's only great because you know how bad things can get. It'd so boring, you, wouldn't it? it absolutely. So, so I, I would love people to read that book. And if you can drop it, if you can, if you can bump into me, one of those 10 cities that I'm visiting, know, look out yeah. something Harry got on Sunday, I've got to Edinburgh and Newcastle, but um, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend that. And if anybody listening to this, that wants a free copy of that book on audio, email me, they can have it. Well, yeah, I'm going to say we'll, 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 we'll give some out if you, if you want to send some out. No, I've, got, we'll I've, some I've out just done the audio recording of the book. So if anybody's listening oh. to your podcast yeah. here that wants a, uh, uh, the, the audio book, the audio book version of it for free. I just, yeah. you know what? It's that special that book. I'll just give it to them. I'll have to create an email now. So I'll just, I'll make, I'll make this up now. Podcast yeah. at richardmccann.co.uk. I'll create the email address so that when somebody emails that podcast at richardmccann.co.uk, it'll get an email bounced back to them, which they can download the cool. the audio. I've done it. Cool. I've said it. So I've got cool. to give it to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, if. Uh... I'd say go and buy the book, but if someone's if you're listening and maybe yeah. ten or twenty quid or whatever it is feels like yeah, a lot no. for you, drop the email and we can get a few well, people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where yeah, can that, we find you? Where can we find you? Well, Twitter. Uh, Twitter. I am on Twitter. I'm I can inspire. LinkedIn. It's Richard McCann. Facebook. Richard McCann. And website. RichardMcCann.co.uk. And all my stuffs on, on those places. Legend. Instagram as well. I, I, I I've not got my head around Instagram yeah. yet. But I do go on there. And it's I don't think I anyone does. Philosophy. Yeah. I, I definitely don't do Snapchat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't. There you go. Cheers, guys. Perfect. Cheers. Thank, Thank you, Richard. Much, Absolute mate. legend, mate. Thank you for listening to that, guys. Thank you for listening to the Mentality Podcast. A shout to Wheatwood Hall Hotel. A shout to Morris Infrastructure and Matt Morris there. And also a big shout out to Richard McCann for sharing that incredible, incredible story, being so honest, being so raw, and being so thoughtful on, on what his life means now and what it means from the progression of, of, of the setbacks he's had too. Keep your eyes peeled, guys, for Mentality Apparel. Keep your eyes peeled for pre-orders. And have a look at mentalitymagazine.com for all the updates. And have a look at my Instagram. Have a look at Steve underscore Ward on Instagram, on Twitter. And we now have Mentality on Twitter and Instagram. So no Mentality Magazine anymore, just Mentality. Keep up to date, guys. Keep plugging in with Mentality. Appreciate the support. All the best.